feel safe. Richard Ramirez, a drifter from El Paso, Texas, and a self-described Satan worshiper, began his reign of terror in June 1984. By the time of his arrest 14 months later, Ramirez had gone on a killing rampage so grisly that Deputy District Attorney Phil Halpin said Ramirez had probably rewritten the book on serial murders. A map with pins marking locations of murders, 13 of them, and assaults, vicious attacks, showed that Ramirez moved quickly, killing and leaving, heading to another area to kill again. Night is meant to be a time of rest and peace. But on occasion, something entirely different happens. Sometimes peaceful sleep is anything but peaceful. Some nights you are not as alone as you may hope to be. Without making so much as a peep, something, or rather someone, could be lurking in the shadows. As much as this sounds like the beginning of a typical scary story made up to spook you, it is actually the beginning of something much more horrific and 100% true. This is the truth behind the serial killer who infamously haunted the streets of the greater Los Angeles area in the early 1980s. This is the nightmarish tale of the Night Stalker. What is up, Iwu crew? The story we have for you today is one you are probably familiar with, though you may not know the half of it. The tale of Richard Ramirez will convince you to double-check the lock on your own doors before going to sleep, because, as you'll soon realize, the most terrifying monsters in this world are the ones who walk among us. Now, let's get into it. Ricardo Leva Munoz Ramirez was born on February 29, 1960, in El Paso, Texas. Ricardo, who was most often referred to as Richard throughout his life, was the youngest of his five siblings. Richard's parents, Julian and Mercedes Ramirez, had initially moved from Juarez, Mexico to El Paso when Julian had the opportunity to work on the Santa Fe Railroad. Julian, who had been a Mexican national and former policeman from Juarez, was known to be quick to anger and often took his frustrations out on whoever was nearby. Unfortunately for Richard, he was all too often Julian's personal punching bag. Physical abuse has a wide range of negative effects on people, especially children when they experience abuse from a young age. For Richard, violence was a part of his everyday life, and this was only exacerbated when Richard's older cousin, Miguel Mike Ramirez, decided to take him under his wing. As a decorated United States Army Green Beret, Mike was no stranger to violence and would come to shape Richard into the monster he inevitably became. After returning home from various combat zones, Mike would provide Richard with detailed retellings of his gory and gruesome pursuits during the Vietnam War. Mike glorified every aspect of his abuse of Vietnamese women and would even show Richard Polaroid photos of his victims who were often bound and gagged while Mike posed with their bodies. In addition to Mike's willingness to expose young Richard to stories of his own violent endeavors, he also taught him some of the various skills he had picked up in the military, horrifically including stealthy ways to commit murder. Mike was one of Richard's closest friends for the majority of his childhood and early adolescence, 
So when Mike wasn't around, Richard was left feeling rather alone. This sense of lonesomeness combined with his father's constant maltreatment led Richard to frequently sneak out of the house. In the middle of the night, Richard would slip out just to go sleep in his town's local cemetery. There he found a little bit of peace in one of the strangest locations. Though any sort of peace was not easily found for Richard. By the time he was 13 years old, he witnessed death firsthand. More so than that, he witnessed his cousin, his role model, murder his own wife in cold blood. On May 4, 1973, Richard watched intently as Mike used a 38 caliber revolver to settle a domestic argument with his wife, Jessie, by shooting her in the face. Instead of interfering or trying to assist Jessie after she had been shot, Richard simply sat back and took in the scene before him. After Jesse's murder and Mike's subsequent arrest, Richard withdrew from his family and his peers at school. Already known to be quiet, he became even more closed off than he had been prior to the incident. As Mike was sent to prison for his crimes, Richard was once again alone. His older sister Ruth noticed Richard's strange behavior and was well aware of the harm he had constantly faced within the walls of their parents' home. So, she offered Richard the chance to come live with her and her husband, Roberto, for as long as he needed. Richard accepted the offer graciously, hoping that it would serve as an escape from his father's anger. Though moving in with Ruth seemed like a good idea at the time, it would ultimately shape Richard, and not in a good way. What Ruth had not known about her husband was that he was a notorious peeping Tom. In the middle of the night, Roberto would leave the house to go on creepy excursions around the neighborhood. He would peer through the windows of women and young girls alike for the thrill of it all. Once Richard moved in with them, Roberto started taking Richard on his nocturnal endeavors and even taught Richard the tricks of not getting caught. Instead of serving as the good influence Richard so desperately needed, Roberto ultimately led Richard down another dark path. While living with his sister, Richard began experimenting with drugs and started to rely on smoking marijuana and taking LSD. With his newfound love for hallucinogenics and all things wicked, Richard even took up Satanism. He enjoyed researching satanic practices and even declared he wished to live by whatever means pleased him. Richard's interest in evil practices, abusing drugs, and spying on women increased significantly when his favorite cousin, Mike, was eventually released from prison in 1977. Despite the fact that he murdered his wife in cold blood just years before, Mike was eventually found not guilty of Jesse's murder by reason of insanity. As a result of his release, he once again became the strongest male figure in Richard's life. With the combined influence of Mike and Roberto, Richard started to realize what he wanted out of life. Unlike some people who have career-driven goals and big dreams of success, Richard wanted nothing more than to be a real-life supervillain and to be the one who always came out on top. The thing about Richard Ramirez was that no one could convince him to do anything he did not want to do. Moreover, if he wanted something, he would take it for himself. 
So Richard tested his luck with small, petty crimes. He stole from stores and spied on women in his neighborhood at night in the same way Roberto had taught him. These petty crimes were executed without much planning or preparation on Richard's behalf, and so he was eventually caught and arrested. As Richard was just a teenager at the time of his first arrest in 1977, he was sent to a juvenile detention center and eventually released at the end of his sentence. It wasn't long after leaving juvie that Richard found himself arrested once more, this time for marijuana possession in 1982. He was initially placed on probation before eventually becoming free and independent once more. Before eventually dropping out of high school, Richard took up a part-time job at his town's local Holiday Inn. There, he was instructed to clean rooms and keep things tidy around the hotel. However, the power of a universal pass key eventually burned a hole in Richard's pocket. So Richard began letting himself into the rooms of guests staying at the Holiday Inn. He would snoop around and even take things that he found interesting or valuable in the moment. Soon, Richard became even more daring. He started spying on guests, especially those who were staying in the hotel with their spouses. In one instance, Richard waited until one guest in particular left his wife alone in the room while heading out to grab something for the evening. Then, knowing the man's wife would be all alone on the other side of the door, Richard used his passkey to let himself in. When the man eventually returned, he found Richard over his wife, attempting to assault her. The man grabbed Richard and ended up beating him senseless before police eventually arrived on the scene. Despite the gravity of the situation, the couple who were attacked ended up dropping criminal charges because they did not want to return to Texas from their home state to testify against him. It appeared that Richard got away with his attempted crime, and all the experience did was give him a taste of what was possible, and he wanted far, far more than that. By the time Richard entered the ninth grade, he decided to drop out of Jefferson High School in El Paso and move away from his family. He did not want to be around his father, who tormented him, nor did he want to continue living with his sister despite the bond he formed with her husband. At this point, Mike was in and out of Richard's life as well. When Richard was around 22 years old, he ended up moving to California. California would not only become his new permanent place of residence, it would also become Richard's twisted criminal playground in the early 1980s. Once in California, Richard was arrested for cocaine possession and even a car theft charge. The combination of these two crimes led to a short-lived jail sentence. But Richard's worst crimes were just starting. In April of 1984, while in between homes, Richard often lived out of hotels, including one in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. Richard had managed to find access to the hotel's basement, which was seldom entered by any of the staff. It was there, in the dark, damp basement, that Richard brutally attacked, beat, and stabbed nine-year-old May Loom to death before hanging her lifeless body from a pipe. Despite the severity of the murder, no one initially even suspected Richard as he had abandoned the hotel long before the young girl's body was located by officials. In fact, 
Richard would not be found guilty of Mei Lung's murder until 2009. So Richard got away with yet another crime, this time an actual murder. Escaping the suspicion of police and investigators gave Richard a sense of gruesome pride. In fact, his first successful murder lit a fire under Richard and ultimately made him insatiably hungry for more. In perhaps one of the most infamous murder sprees in California's history, Richard Ramirez set out on a series of half-heartedly planned attacks on seemingly random households over the course of April 1984 to August of 1985. Over the span of a little over a year, Richard transformed himself into a real-life bloodthirsty monster, becoming the Night Stalker. On June 28, 1984, the Night Stalker took the life of his second victim. This time, Richard chose to attack and brutally murder Jenny Vinkow. Vinkow was a 79-year-old woman who lived in a small apartment in Glassell Park, Los Angeles. Richard had stabbed the old woman to death after having forced himself on her. Before fleeing, Richard even nearly decapitated her without leaving any evidence behind to identify him at the scene. That is, except for a smudged fingerprint on the mesh screen window that had been supposedly removed for him to access the apartment. Despite the fingerprint, investigators did not even know Richard Ramirez's name at the time of Jenny Vincow's murder. However, it would not be long before the Night Stalker would make his rounds in the greater Los Angeles area and earn his infamous nickname. Determined to kill again on March 27, 1985, just a little under a year after his last murder, Richard shot a 22-year-old woman in the face just inside the entrance of her own home in Rosemead, California. The woman, Maria Hernandez, had just pulled her vehicle into the garage upon returning home when she was met face-to-face -face with a wide-eyed Richard Ramirez, pointing a 22 caliber handgun directly at her. As he fired, Maria instinctively moved her hands up to her face in an attempt to shield herself from the bullet barreling toward her. By some luck, the keys in Maria's hands actually managed to cause the bullet to ricochet away from her face allowing her to avoid being struck altogether. Realizing that his shot had missed, Richard decided to flee the scene as fast as possible. In doing so, however, he essentially ran into Maria's 34-year-old housemate, Dale Yoshi Okazaki. At the sound of the gunshot, Dale had rushed toward the garage entrance, wherein she found Richard Ramirez staring her down with a gun. Dale tried her best to duck behind the kitchen counter to hide. Unfortunately, when Dale raised her head up to get a better look at Richard, he shot her point-blank in the forehead, killing her instantly. Not even an hour after escaping from Dale and Maria's Rosemead home, Richard took his next victim. As he was in need of a proper getaway vehicle, Richard successfully managed to steal a car from a 30-year-old woman in Monterey Park. The woman, Sai Lian Veronica Yu, was forcefully pulled out of her own vehicle by Richard, who fired two rounds into her face before driving off. Veronica was found by passersby who had heard the commotion and the gunshots and called local authorities. By the time Veronica made it to the nearest hospital, she was pronounced dead. Two brutal attacks within miles of each other instantly made the news, 
That evening, it appeared a monster was making its way through Southern California. A monster that the media dubbed the Walk-In Killer and the Valley Intruder. Just ten days after his two successful and one attempted murder, Richard struck again. This time, he made his way back to a home located in Whittier, California, that he had broken into in the past. Around 2 a.m., Richard led himself into the home of 64-year-old Vincent Charles Zazara, who he killed in his sleep shortly after entering the house. Though Vincent's death was quick, the sound of the gunshot awoke his wife Maxine, who had been sleeping soundly by his side. When it came to Maxine, Richard thought it best to keep her alive, at least for a little while, so that she could help him locate all of the valuable items the couple kept in their home. Richard beat Maxine and eventually bound her hands to keep her in place while he searched in the drawers she had directed him toward. Much to his surprise, Maxine had actually managed to escape her bonds and maneuvered herself over to the bed. There, Maxine reached under the mattress and retrieved a shotgun that had been hidden there since the couple's last break-in. Unfortunately, Maxine realized all too late that the shotgun was not loaded. When Richard turned his attention back to her, he was overwhelmed with anger to see her with a weapon, and he shot her three times with his 22 handgun. Though the gunshots killed her almost instantly, Richard was not finished with Maxine. Instead, he headed into the deceased couple's kitchen and retrieved a large carving knife before returning to the bloody bedroom. There, Richard repeatedly stabbed Maxine's lifeless body and even gouged out her eyes and placed them in a jewelry box, which he left with. Before fleeing the scene, Richard made sure to leave clear footprints in the couple's flower beds with a pair of Avia sneakers. Richard knew that the footprints would be easily discovered by police, which they were. Investigators were sure to photograph and cast the footprints in hopes to have a better understanding of whomever they were looking for, but the footprints were the only clues they could find. Police quickly realized that the bullets left behind at the crime scene were exactly the same as those from the Rosemead murders just days beforehand. It was evident to investigators that they were not simply dealing with horrific, but random murders. No, they were on the trail of a serial killer. For the next few months, Richard continued his murder spree with the same energy that he had started with. Only now, he relished in his ability to pull off such brutal murders and get away with them. His various killing styles changed as each victim presented Richard with new means of murdering them. With most of his female victims, Richard would assault them before or during killing them. Some he beat, others he shocked with electrical cords. Some were strangled, some were bludgeoned. Some he simply shot point blank before mutilating their bodies. But a rare few managed to survive the Night Stalker's attacks. On August 24, 1985, Richard headed down to Orange County, California, to the town of Mission Viejo. There he parked his stolen vehicle down the street from the home belonging to James Romero Jr., who had just returned to California with his then 13-year-old son, James Romero III. The father and son had been on a family vacation in Rosarito Beach, Mexico, and had just gotten back on the same day that Richard Ramirez had decided to stop by and let himself in. 
in the dead of night, James Romero III heard a noise just outside of his bedroom window, indicating that there was definitely someone creeping around. Immediately, young James woke his sleeping parents, thinking there was some kind of bad guy lurking in the shadows. Realizing that the lights in Romero's home all turned on at the same time, Richard thought it best to abandon his planned attack if it could not be a stealth one. Before he could get away, however, James III managed to note the color, make, and model of the car Richard had been driving. More so than that, he had even managed to memorize at least part of the license plate number. A 13-year-old boy had managed to obtain more information on Richard than any investigator to date. James Romero Jr. promptly called police, thinking they had chased away a potential thief. Little did they know that they had come minutes away from being the Night Stalker's next victims. Shortly after his failed attempt at the Romero's home, Richard found himself breaking into the house of Bill Carnes and his soon-to-be wife, Inez Erickson. As per Richard's infamous fashion, he let himself into the house and snuck his way into the couple's bedroom. There he woke 30-year-old Bill Carnes from his sleep by cocking his 25 caliber handgun. As Bill lifted his head in search of the sound source, Richard shot him three times. Then he turned to Inez. Richard looked the frightened woman dead in the eye and told her that he was the Night Stalker. He then forced her into swearing up and down that she loved Satan. All the while, Richard beat her and bound her with her fiancé's neckties from the closet. After assaulting her, Richard managed to steal what valuables and cash he could find. Before leaving Bill to bleed out, Richard locked eyes with Inez once more and decided to leave her alive. Instead of executing her, he told her, quote, Tell them the Night Stalker was here. Once Richard fled the scene, Inez managed to break away from her bonds and rush over to her neighbor's home to ask for help. Ultimately, Bill managed to survive his injuries after having the three bullets surgically removed. As she had been left alive, Inez was able to provide police with the information they so desperately needed. A physical description of the man who had been slaughtering people in the Los Angeles area for months. Police were also once again able to photograph and cast the footprints left in and outside the home. Just four days later, the stolen car was located back in Los Angeles, and, despite his efforts to wipe the vehicle clean, investigators were able to find a single fingerprint on the car's rearview mirror. The fingerprint was run through the police databases and found to be a positive match for Richard Ramirez. The next day, Richard's name and face were released to the public. The whole state of California and beyond knew the Night Stalker's true identity. On August 30th, 1985, Richard had decided to visit his brother who lived in Tucson, Arizona. Unbeknownst to him, his face was plastered on every newspaper and every television station in the state of California. Unfortunately for Richard, there was an issue with meeting up with his brother, and so he backtracked his travels to return to Los Angeles. Richard ended up back in L.A. early on the morning of August 31st, and though he didn't know it, investigators had been tracking his every move. Police believed that the Night Stalker would attempt to flee on an outbound bus, 
so they lined up all over the block in the hopes to stop him. Richard had noticed the police officers and managed to keep his head low and avoid being spotted as he walked into a nearby convenience store. That is, until a group of women caught a glimpse of him. The group of old Mexican women shrieked in fear and called out frantically that the man before them was none other than El Maton, the killer. Richard looked around in a panic as he realized that dozens of magazines in the store had one face staring down at him, his own. Richard fled from the store as fast as he could and even darted across the busy Santa Ana freeway in the middle of traffic in an attempt to get away. In his mad dash for a hiding place, Richard attempted to carjack a variety of vehicles, but was unsuccessful in each attempt. All of a sudden, bystanders watching Richard run realized they were in the presence of the Night Stalker in broad daylight. Together, a group of residents from the neighborhood managed to tackle him to the ground. One resident even managed to strike Richard over the head with a metal bar forcing the serial killer to fall to his knees in pain. The group of Good Samaritans relentlessly beat the subdued Richard until police arrived and promptly arrested him for his brutal crime spree. Richard was then finally taken to court for his horrific attacks and murders. He is famously remembered for shouting during the court proceedings and drawing a pentagram on his hand which he showed to the court as well as another in his blood on the wall of his cell. Interestingly, the state of Richard's teeth ended up being a turning point in his trial. Richard was known to have decaying teeth, and by the time he was in jail, nine of his teeth were rotting, while some were missing altogether from both his upper and lower jaw. His father had provided him with an alibi during his trial, stating that Richard had been in Texas during one of the weeks where there had been three attacks, and therefore could not be the killer. Yet a dentist from Los Angeles later testified that he had actually treated Richard for his rotting teeth during that time period, proving that his father had lied. On September 20th, 1989, Richard Ramirez was convicted of 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. On November 7, 1989, Richard was sentenced to 19 respective death sentences in the state of California via gas inhalation. After his sentencing was revealed, Richard told reporters, Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. That quote alone sent shivers down the news reporter's spines. But perhaps one of the most chilling parts of Richard's trial was the overwhelming obsession that countless women had with the man who wreaked havoc throughout Southern California. In fact, multiple women who claimed to be fans of Richard would write him letters and even pay him visits in prison. One woman in particular, Doreen Leoy, wrote Richard around 75 letters in total during his incarceration. Doreen described Richard as, quote, He's kind, he's funny, he's charming. I think he's a really great person. He's my best friend, he's my buddy. Richard asked Doreen to marry him, and despite the fact that he would be in prison for the rest of his life until he was executed, they were married within the walls of San Quentin State Prison in October of 1996. For years after their official wedding date, 
Doreen swore to reporters, friends, and family members alike that she would take her life the same day that Richard was to be executed. However, their supposed love did not seem to last. Doreen eventually left Richard for one reason or another that was never expressed publicly, though some have speculated Doreen became disturbed at Richard's lack of empathy for his crimes. Richard did not seem to mind much. In fact, Richard eventually ended up engaged yet again, this time to a 23-year-old writer, Christine Lee. Because of the state of California's notoriously lengthy appeals process, Richard Ramirez would have been in his early 70s by the time his execution was properly carried out. However, the infamous Night Stalker never made it that far. On June 7, 2013, Richard died of complications secondary to B-cell lymphoma at Marin General Hospital in Greenbrae, California, at 53 years old. Though Richard can no longer torture the residents of the greater Los Angeles area, his victims and their families feel little closure in the Night Stalker's death. Rather, Richard Ramirez's story serves as a reminder that monsters are real and they are vicious. Richard was a cruel killer, one with no remorse whatsoever. If you take anything away from this episode, we hope it is this. Lock your doors, stay alert, and remember to always double-check the shadows. You never know what or who could be lurking there, just beyond your field of vision.